Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's 4 o'clock, and since it's 4 o'clock, and since I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, that means you are listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. As you know, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, um, church questions, stuff going on in your life questions, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call. Dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we have nothing going on on Tuesday, uh, so we'll get right to some questions that have been sent in. Uh, I know what I wanted to say, though. Uh, ladies, especially those of you who have been um, who've struggled with your past and maybe some of the shameful or embarrassing things that you've done, uh, can I please direct you to uh, our website, calvarysa.com, and listen to Jenny Manuel's Sweet Summer Devotion last night. It was absolutely wonderful, spectacular. It was honest. It was very direct. And and um, she 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 accepted full responsibility for things and honored the Lord. Uh, I just think it was really really outstanding. And I just know there's just a whole bunch of you ladies out there who just have our time not beating yourself up over the things that you've done in the past. Uh, and I was so proud of Jenny. I just it was just an amazing sweet summer devotion. Uh, and I could I could just imagine the Lord's smile. So uh, that is available on our website at calvaryessay.com. At the beginning, you'll come to recent studies. Hit that, and then you'll go down and you'll see uh, the different studies. But Sweet Summer Devotions is right there in that mix, and it's easy to navigate. She did a wonderful, wonderful job. 
Let's get to some questions. First one is a question. This one is from Nacho. Nacho always asks these interesting questions uh, that I could make an hour Bible study out of. So uh, I'll try to limit my comments, but but I think it's it's a good study, a good good question. Pastor Ron, can you break down Jeremiah chapter thirty for me? It took me two weeks to do that, Nacho, when when I studied it verse by verse. He says, I think it's both for present and future prophecies from that time, uh, like verses one through three seem to be pointing to the end of the seventy years of captivity, but then from verse four it seems to be pointing to a time after Jesus, the end times. I had to supplementary. I had two supplementary questions about the same chapter. First, in verse six, can I use that verse to point at the fall? of today's push in believing that a man can become uh, pregnant. Since that is not God's plan, God literally points out the futility of that thought. The second question is from verses 12 through 23. And then I've got, you get 15, but I don't know what that really means there. But it said, could this uh, incurable wound be a reference to the Holocaust and events all the way up to today in what we call anti-Semitism? Um, let me, the, the easy one is verse 6. Um, uh, where Jeremiah just, uh, God asked Jeremiah um, um, rhetorically, can a man have a baby? And the answer to that question, of course, is no. A man can't have a baby. We're the only ones that are dumb enough to believe that. But that's what it says here. And and um, um, when he says, can man bear children, um, he, he's liking it to the impossible. He says, then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deadly pale? Well, the reason they see that is because judgment is right outside the gate. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But, um, you know, that's a wonderful verse when somebody insists that men can have babies. Of course, they're referring to trans men who aren't really men at all. And I think what we need to, to, to do is say, look, here's God's plan. We've got it from uh, the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. Uh, there are men and there are women. That never changes. Uh, women are the, the ones who have babies, not men who identify as women, but only women can have babies. And it's a question that it ought to be so simple. That what is a woman? It ought to be easy to answer that question. And uh, as you know, Nacho, we had a Supreme Court justice uh, who was confirmed who could not answer that question or refused to uh, because she was um, nuanced, of course, and into woke ideology. So uh, I like that. Jesus is just asking the impossible. Can a man bear children? The, the, the answer to the rhetorical question is no. Everybody knows that. And for history, everybody has known that. Now, let me talk about uh, this, this uh, chapter for just a couple of moments. Um, uh, as, as Jeremiah is giving this prophecy, um, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, uh, is outside the gates, uh, about to destroy, utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem. This is his third and final assault. Uh, it has been preceded by years of siege on the city, meaning there's no food, there's no water. Inside the gates, people are actually eating their own children. Um, the water supply has been cut off, and everybody knows that the end is near. 
And that's the setting that sets the stage for what I think personally are one of the greatest series of promises ever. And I, I won't have time to go through it, but actually chapters 30 through 34 um, are, are poetic. They almost sing. That's how beautiful they are. Now, what you're seeing here is you're seeing the people of Israel forced to deal with reality. You know, the false prophets have been telling them that all is well, all is well. God is going to deliver us. And Jeremiah is the only one who has a message to the contrary. And he's telling them, no, surrender to Babylon. Go to Babylon peacefully. And uh, uh, God is not going to deliver us. And nobody wants to listen to him. So I think that's really important. Now, you asked about the prophecies, short and long-term fulfillment. Like many of our prophecies, uh, Nacho, uh, there is both short-term and long-term fulfillment. Uh, much of this is is about what happens or what is happening now and the short-term fulfillment. But most of this chapter goes all the way down the corridor of time and space to the end, to the Great Tribulation. And that's what uh, is the basis of all the promises. Yes, all these things are going to happen. It's going to look impossibly bleak. But don't worry. Um, David will... Are we back on the air? I think we had a temporary glitch. Joe, if that's why we didn't get you... um, Please call back, 340-9585. I hope I'm transmitting now. I think I am. Okay. Um, Gene, I, I don't know if what, you, what I read about your question got on the air, so I'm going to start over, Gene. Uh, she says, I'm a regular listener. I realize you have a favorite translation of the Bible that you prefer to reference. I wondered what you know about those translations, which I understand have been altered, and that altered is in quotes, to reflect some of the extreme changes and immoral stances which are being used in these renegade renegade congregations. Now, Gene, what I was starting to say when I was told we were off the air is basically this. Be very careful about the rhetoric that you use about things that you understand, and as later you're going to make clear in this email, other people have told you these things. Um, First, people that use different translations other than the King James Version are not renegade translations. Bibles have not been altered, and people that take that position have zero understanding about how our Bibles were put together and the basis upon which the translations were made. So please be careful. That's the kind of language that will cause people to stop listening altogether to you. And then she says, if I approach someone dear and wish to refer them to Scripture, which has been unaltered and polluted with untruth, how do I say that? How would I tell them that these scriptures have been changed and cannot be trusted to be true, especially, especially since they are now being told that these versions, which are uh, new, are true and not changed? I am unarmed and do not know any of these versions. Is there any place that I might go, a website or an authoritative bulwark, which can be trusted as faultless in its information? I understand that there are now websites which mimic truth. That's artificial intelligence I think you're referring to, but you don't have to worry about that, Gene. Um, on the surface, they claim truth, but are actually not. This is from a conversation from a family member. Thank you for the information. I'd like 
Uh, if you'd like to air this, it would be great. Grateful for your help and truth in your program is so appreciated. Gene, the, the Bibles that you see. Now, uh, somebody in your family is a King James only guy. And there's no scholarship at all. Uh, these people have zero understanding at all about how our Bibles were put together. It is so important that we don't repeat this nonsense that other people say, well, everybody knows that these all, these uh, uh, versions have been altered, they've been changed. There are some really bad translations out there. Uh, the Passion Translation is horrible, absolutely horrible. Uh, I don't like the message. There are others that are not really translations. They are paraphrases uh, at best, and in some cases, interpretations. But they're, they're, those are few and far between. The new translations are reliable. Um, they're easier to read in the sense that they use the kind of language that is used. Language is not static. It changes over the centuries. Uh, and King James English, as wonderfully memorable as it is, uh, is, is hard to understand for some people. Uh, uh, they're just phrases that aren't used any longer or don't mean the same thing that they meant when they were written. So here's what I want you to understand, Gene. The Bible translations that we have are based on one of two sets of manuscripts, uh, Texas Receptus uh, or the majority manuscripts. Um, that's where the King James and the New King James come from. And the New King James has its detractors uh, among the King James only group, too. But they're basically translating the same manuscripts. The NIV, the 84 NIV, which I think is far superior. It is the best New Testament translation available. Um, it, it comes from the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are older than the majority or the Texas Receptus uh, manuscripts. So it's not like the new translations are altering or changing or cutting things out. They're simply being faithful to the translation of different and older manuscripts. And generally speaking, Gene, although I don't necessarily um, believe this to be true, uh, the, 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 the prevailing thought is that the older something is, the more reliable it is. And if that's the case, then the manuscripts that the King James comes from uh, is not uh, as reliable as the other translations. Again, I don't personally believe that. But these newer translations are excellent. The ESV, the NASB, um, um, again, the 1984 version of the NIV. Those are wonderful translations, and they can be depended on. When you see something taken out of that, and when I say taken out, I use that term loosely. Uh, it's not really taken out. It's just that it wasn't in that set of manuscripts and even when they do that, Gene, they make reference to other versions say, and they'll have the verse and, and the, 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 the translation of that verse at the bottom of your page. So nobody's trying to hide anything. Nobody's changing anything or altering anything. And, and the fact that somebody in your family would, would make these kind of scandalous, I mean, these are, are, are gossipy, horrible things to say, um, Gene, just don't listen to it. Just don't listen to him. And the books out there that are strongly supportive of King James only 
uh, theology, they're missing a bunch of things. First and foremost, they're missing the fact that if their line of thinking is true, if if there are if the King James is the only authorized Bible, then there was no Bible that was reliable before the seventeenth uh, century. And, and, of course, we know that's not true. God's Word has always been there. So um, you just have to take it with a grain of salt. You can't change these people's minds. But their their opinions have been formed contrary to scholarship. And what I like to tell people, Gene, when they come up with this stuff is, hey, how about you try reading a book? Just just find some books and read it. It'll help you understand what's being done. And I'm not being mean when I do that. I'm trying to get them to understand that their line of reasoning is completely, absolutely um, uh, faulty. And uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, you asked for some books. Um, Gene, I'm going to give you one. And, and uh, the books I'm going to talk to you about are not super interesting reading. Um, some are scholarly, uh, but but they're invaluable. The first, and I think the most important one, is uh, a man named F. F. Bruce. It's a paperback, uh, but it's are the are the New Testament documents are they reliable? So F. F. Like Frank Frank, F. F. Bruce. The New Testament documents, are they reliable? And he does a wonderful job of demonstrating the the authority of the reliability of the New Testament document. There's another one. Uh, Josh McDowell has written it. It's uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Actually, the newer uh, version of it is called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he has an entire section in his book that deals with the canon of Scripture, the manuscript evidence that our, our Bibles are reliable and true, and you can depend on them. Uh, and again, it's very scholarly. Josh is a very smart guy, um, but but really, really worthwhile. If you want something a little easier to read, there are uh, a couple of books I'll recommend. One is by a man called named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E, and it's um, it's actually two series. It's Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe. And then there's one by Lee Strobel that is also uh, quite readable, um, The Case for the Bible by Lee Strobel. Uh, and he's got a lot of stuff out there. So all of that stuff is available. And you can sort of pick out the level of, of scholarship or difficulty uh, that you're comfortable with with those. But the one that, that is the most important related to your question is the New Testament documents. Are they reliable by F.F. Bruce? And please, 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 Gene, do not repeat this kind of stuff. We Christians will listen to somebody on a website and uh, um, um, they'll convince us just not true. Uh, at all. So uh, I hope that makes sense to you, Gene. And again, appreciate the spirit uh, that you wrote in. However, do not listen to that kind of extremism. Uh, it is, uh, um, I mean, how do you justify speaking ill of people who love Jesus? And the NIV 1984 remains, at least in the New Testament the most reliable translation out there, the most accurate. Thank you, Gene. I appreciate it very, very much. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Marcy. She says, can you please explain working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Marcy, every time I get this question, I point out, first of all, that we can all be grateful that it doesn't say that we're working for our salvation with with fear and trembling, but working out our salvation. And what that means literally is getting up every day and walking with Jesus, being in the word, uh, letting the Holy Spirit speak to us through his word. Um, um, trying to live lives, I'm going to quote the Apostle Paul here, trying to live lives worthy of our calling and worthy of the name Christ that we've been honored to bear. And and working out our salvation with fear and trembling is a fear of God. It's a healthy filial fear of God. It's not like he's going to squash me if I mess up. That's not that kind of fear at all. But honoring God with the, the way we spend our time every day, not being distracted, uh, n- not uh, letting our guard down. Uh, Paul says, uh, not being conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds uh, through the washing of the water or washing of the word. So uh, that that's what we need to do. And it's just really sort of reporting to God. You know, we all go to jobs. We all have supervisors. And when you, you have a supervisor at your job, um, you know, you, you report for duty. It's time to go to work. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to do it the way you tell me to do it. Um, and, and I think working out our salvation with fear and trembling is very much the same thing. Just getting up in the morning and reporting for duty. Jesus, I'm yours. I want to honor you. I want to bring you glory. Give me opportunities to share with other people. Uh, being active in sharing our faith. Um, being busy, understanding that that uh, part of our goal is to demonstrate the good fruit of the, of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Um, so that's what it is. It's, it's saying no to your flesh, saying no to temptation, saying no to the, the world that's trying to convince us that right is wrong and wrong is right. Um, and doing it simply because we love God and we fear him. You know, Solomon wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what that means, Marcy, is that if we have no fear of God, then it doesn't matter how smart or intellectual we might be. uh, It means that we have no wisdom at all. It begins with understanding who God is and what he's done. And then we do the best that we can to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when Paul writes that in Philippians chapter 2, you you read the context of that. And I think it's very instructive for all of us, Uh, no matter what time frame that we live in. um, It's a constant battle. You know, we'd like to think, I think most of us would like to think that uh, getting up and serving Jesus is easy. It's not. We've got to die to our flesh say no to us so that we can say yes to him. And the reality is we just don't like saying no to our flesh. At least I don't. My flesh is insatiable. It's impossible to satisfy it. So what I do is in the healthy fear of God, I simply say, Lord, I don't want to embarrass you today. I always tell him too, I don't want to embarrass Paula today. So here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to spend the whole day with you. And you keep me in the place 
where I can resist temptation. You keep me from losing my temper. You keep me from from getting ugly in my flesh. Jesus, I want to be with you where you are. So, Marcy, that's as directly as I can explain working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show. We'd love your phone calls and questions. Joe, if you're out there, we'll take you right after the break. 340-9585. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our tuesday show 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR here's an interesting question from geneva She says, is it possible for unsaved people to show fruits of the Spirit? Now, I just mentioned that in my last conversation. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Of course it is, Geneva, but just not for long. And when I say not for long, the truth is there's some really kind people, nice people, Uh, There's people that are positive and always up and cheery. So, yeah, they can demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit sometimes. But apart from Jesus Christ, the best they can do is imitate the real fruit of the Spirit that Jesus says is available only through his Holy Spirit. But, yes, there are people who are nice. There are people that are kind. There are people that sacrifice uh, their time and their talents uh, for other people. So, yes, there, there, there's fruits of the Spirit out there. I call this common grace. God gives um, uh, common grace to everybody, the saved and the unsaved alike. Uh, but they just can't do it for very long. And uh, I think that makes it clear. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you today? I'm doing well, Cindy. How about you? Oh, I'm fine. I have two things. First, I have encouragement about you going through the book of Leviticus (laughs) on Wednesday. I read it years ago, and it it, it really took a lot of stamina to get through it. And if I were to liken that book um, to a to like a food group, it would have been like a plain bowl of Yukon Gold mashed potatoes with no salt, no pepper, no butter, and no gravy. <laughs> but the good thing is, is that I know you can turn a plain bowl of mashed potatoes into into a gourmet meal. So I am very looking forward to going through Leviticus. I think it's going to be exciting. I think it's going to be interesting, and and I'm just happy you're going to do that. Cindy, you are too kind to me. I'm not sure I can do that, but I will do my best. Even when you say some of your times when you say, well, this is going to be kind of boring, it's it's exciting and it's interesting. But I really think it will because it'll be interesting understanding why they chose these animals. Or I think it's just going to be interesting, the whole thing. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now, the reason I called, though, other than that, was I was reading in Psalm 78 and from... Um, 
Psalm 78, 24 and 25 says, He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. Now, the part that I highlighted was that men ate the bread of angels, which made me wonder, do angels eat? And, and if they eat, then they must have some type of physical form of some sort. I know this doesn't matter if we don't know the answer. It's just something I found curious while I was uh, reading the other day. So I'm going to get off the phone and listen to your answer. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Um, angels probably don't eat. That's not the reference here. This is a reference to the manna that God gave them in the wilderness. Um, he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. All this is, Cindy, is um, very poetic language, symbolic language, demonstrating the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Uh, just like when they were thirsty, water uh, flowed from a rock. It literally gushed from a rock. And they had the best water ever. And uh, every morning, God had the manna spread out on the wilderness floor, uh, uh, enough to feed the the two to three million people that were there. And he said that's uh, basically angel food is what he's saying. And it doesn't mean that angels eat. It just means um, that, that the source of that food, that bread, that manna from heaven, was truly heaven. So that's all it means. Cindy, let me comment on, on what you said about Leviticus. You know, one of the one of Paula's in my routines in the morning is um, um, she will read um, the the Wednesday studies to me um, on um, typically on Monday she she reads uh, the Sunday study that I'm doing next and uh, sometimes the Friday night study but on Tuesdays and Wednesdays I want to focus on the the study I'm going to be doing on Wednesday night which is always Old Testament. And I've been reading through Leviticus, and I told Paula, I said, Paula, we're not going to read. I'm not going to have you read to me the, the Leviticus, okay? And she said, well, okay, but why? And they said, you know, I'm reading. It's all, you know, all these infectious diseases and what to do about the, and mildew in your house. And uh, honestly, it is laborious reading, but there are important pictures and reasons. And I'm going to do my best to bring those out, but... Uh, I don't want anybody coming to church on Wednesday or tuning on or turning on our website expecting to get some uh, really interesting, motivating Bible studies through uh, the book of Leviticus. Um, you know, sometimes it's just hard work. And, you know, you got to you got to put your head down and do the work. And that's what we're going to do uh, in Leviticus. I put this off for 28 years. Um, I God won't let me put it off anymore. So uh, I can promise you this, that God will speak to people uh, because he's faithful. It has nothing to do with what I do with the, with the passage of Scripture. Cindy, thank you very, very much. Here is a question um, by Charlie, from Charlie. He says, how is it possible for the righteous to live by faith when the Bible says there is no one 
righteous. Uh, Charlie, remember, our righteousness is given to us. It's sort of a borrowed righteousness. Um, When the Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who seeks after God, um, the the Bible is talking about uh, in our natural condition, in our flesh. Um, There's nothing about my heart that's good apart from what God has done. And God has given me his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God at 2 Corinthians 5.21. So ours is a borrowed or usurped righteousness. And make no mistake, Charlie, when the Holy Spirit lives in us and when we're walking according to the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, Uh, There is a lot of righteousness that comes from us. We simply can't take credit for that righteousness because, as I said, it has nothing to do whatsoever with us. And to God be the glory for any righteousness that comes to us. And so the righteous, he's saying, the saved, those who have believed in me, those who by faith have Uh, have accepted me as their Lord and Savior because I'm going to give them my righteousness. Then by faith, um, day after day after day, we can walk with Jesus. And I think, Charlie, that's one of the things that we miss out on. Um, You know, we, we, all of us, I think, understand saving faith. We understand how we're saved. We understand that we don't deserve it. But, But we forget all about the daily faith the daily grace that is required for all of us to serve the Lord day after day after day and grow in the knowledge of God and grow in the knowledge of his grace and how it works in our lives. So uh, our righteousness comes from him. And uh, when we are submitted to the spirit of God, uh, then we walk by faith. And by the way, we can't approach Jesus on any other basis other than faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Thank you very much. Here's a question from Jake. Is it ever acceptable for a wife to correct her husband since he is a spiritual leader? Of course it is, Jake. Now, Jake, I'm, I'm going to assume this question is very personal and your wife has corrected you. When your wife loves you enough to correct you, and she does it respectfully and nicely, when she corrects you, you ought to get on your knees and thank God for her. I can't tell you how many times Paula has just said something to me that made me think about what I just said or think about the tone I'm using or something um, or remind me of something. And and um, that, that kind of correction is absolutely necessary. And while it's true that the man is the spiritual head of the house, remember that she is your partner, your one flesh, no longer two, but one. And God will use her to speak to you. Now, I say this often, and sometimes it gets misunderstood, that uh, the Holy Spirit has spoken to me a lot and and sounds exactly like Paula. Uh, sometimes Paula will be saying something or asking a question even, and, and the Holy Spirit will let me know at that moment that that's him talking to me through her. And and I I can't do what I do without those times. And Paula knows that she can speak to me at any time about anything, and her and I, we have a way of of uh, 
dealing with issues. It's just, uh, you know, I think let's, let's sit down and talk. We need to talk about something. And if she says that to me, I'm going to listen because she has been so faithful. Her walk is such a mature walk. And um, and we need to be able to correct one another. So if you aren't correctable or if you resent correction coming from your wife, um, then the problem, Jake, is, is with you and not with her. That's very important for us to understand. Um, I, I, could, I, I repeat, I couldn't do what I do without Paula. And I have to remember sometimes, even if, if I'm a little fleshy, I have to remember that Paula is the only person who's always and only wanted the best for me. She's the only person, other than Jesus Christ, she's the only person in my life who's always and only wanted the best for me. And so I don't have to suspect her motives. I don't have to question, well, why did you say that? Uh, did I mess up? I don't have to get defensive at all. Um, I just have to understand that her motives for me are pure and and sent from the Lord. And since I'm responsible for her walk with the Lord, I mean, you know, as as I'm going to stand before God and give account of that, um, she needs to be able to voice uh, her her mind and her heart. And uh, I have no problem listening to her at all. So it is always acceptable, Jake. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, Here's an anonymous question. I have a lot of problems with sleeping. Marijuana helps, but some Christians say I shouldn't do it. Can I have your thoughts? Um, Anonymous, if you need marijuana to go to sleep, um, then you are being held captive, and we're not to be held captive by anything. It is never, ever, ever okay to take marijuana. I know that people get angry when I say that, um, but it's just not okay. So if you have problems with sleeping, take that to the Lord. Uh, Train your body. Uh, I think sometimes we get in bed and we toss and we turn and we give up and we get active. Our minds sort of keep going. Train your body to be still. We need to learn to rest. We need to learn to be still. And, And your body will... Uh, you will be trained. We have a lot of people, and, and most notably uh, anonymous women in our church who who um, really have a difficult time with, with sleeping, insomniacs. Um, and, you know, they're running on far less sleep than they need. And the one thing that's common with all of them is when they're having trouble sleeping, they get up and they get busy. And I think that is not wise uh, I think what we need to do is give our bodies a chance to calm down. And even if it means we lie with our eyes open for a night, we sit there and we do it until our bodies and our minds are trained. Uh, and, and you'll sleep. And I, again, sleeping is really, really important. Marijuana is not the answer. Uh, it never will be the answer. And um, your Christian friends who tell you that you shouldn't be doing that are doing you a favor. Brian says, is it possible to believe in Jesus but have no outward changes in my life? Um, Brian, what you do, if if there's no outward change in your life, you don't really believe in him. You believe about him. Now, there's a big difference. Um, You know, when it says uh, they believed God 
and it was counted to them as righteousness. They believed not in God. They believed God. They took him at his word. And so um, the truth, Brian, is if you meet Jesus, if you meet the real Jesus Christ, you have to change. It's not something you do on your own, but just the, the, the meeting him in and of itself changes who you are. Uh, it's like Moses, and, and everybody's familiar with the, the movie The Ten Commandments. Uh, but Moses was, you know, eager to go up and check out the burning bush. But when he came down from Mount Sinai, and uh, after having seen the burning bush and, and been in the presence of the Lord, uh, and the movie depicts him walking very slowly and pensively, sort of with this awestruck look on his face. Brian, that's what happens when you meet Jesus. You can never be the same. So here's what I'll tell you as directly as I can and as lovingly as I can. If there's been no outward change in your life, you haven't met him. You know about him. Maybe you made an emotional appeal for him to forgive your sins and come into your heart. Uh, You might have gone through the ritual of baptism. But if there's no change in your life, you haven't met him. Everybody who meets Jesus, truly meets him, changes. And you need to be changed. Let me give you two examples. In the New Testament, we've got two people, and I'm going to use the King James language, two people who repented. One was Judas, the other was Peter. Um, Judas went to hell, and Peter was restored by God and used to do marvelous things. What was the difference? Well, Judas's repentance was not genuine. It wasn't, wasn't I'm sorry, that I did this, please forgive me, God. I, I, I want to come back home to you. Um, his repentance was, I'm sorry it didn't work out the way I planned for it to work out. And then because the enemy wanted to kill him, uh, that's his job with all of us, um, um, Judas killed himself uh, because the enemy was heaping guilt. You betrayed innocent blood. How could you do that? Um, and Judas was really not sorry for what he did. He was sorry that what he did didn't work out the way he wanted him to. Peter, on the other hand, was genuinely sorry. He was honest with the Lord. Lord, you know that I like you. And Jesus said, no, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know that I like you. And, And Jesus met him at that place. So, Brian, if you meet Jesus, if you really meet him, then you'll be changed. Here is a question from Patrick. In John 6, Jesus says no one can come to the Father unless he or she is drawn to him. How does that happen? And I assume, Patrick, what you mean is the being drawn to Jesus. Well, that's the, the, the experience with the Holy Spirit. Every believer uh, has had three experiences with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but just to give you an overview, is, is when the Spirit comes alongside you. That's what Jesus said, I will send uh, the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He comes alongside of us and convicts us of sin. Then he comes in you. And that's when he is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And the third relationship we have with the Holy Spirit is that he comes upon us in power. And when he comes upon us in power, um, Patrick, um, that's when the transformation of our lives happen. So that's important. Now, what do they do? What does he mean by comes alongside? Well, that's when that moment comes, when you start realizing that you're a sinner, that you're separated from God. There's this emptiness in your heart. 
Um, maybe it was things that you've been doing all along that you never had any conscience about at all, and suddenly you know those things are wrong, and you're kind of confused. Well, I've always been doing this. Why do I feel bad about it now? That's the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you, and he's convincing you that you are a sinner, uh, convincing you that the only answer to your sin is the righteousness of God, and then if you reject it, he's convincing you that the, the end result will be judgment in hell. And so when when you get the message, uh, and, and it's very clear, I, you know, I know what I'm doing is wrong. That's when we cry out, Father, please forgive me of my sins. We tell him we're sorry for what we've done. And that's the Holy Spirit who is come alongside you. And, uh, and 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 just sort of drawn you to the person of Jesus Christ. And remember, that's the Holy Spirit's job, is to testify about Jesus. Patrick, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's a question from Leo from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron. Thank you for the program. I totally agree with the earlier message about the Bibles being altered. In reading Scripture, I've come across Jesus being crucified on the cross. I read the different Scriptures stating that he was hung on a tree. As Acts 5, 29, 30, Galatians, please explain these Scriptures. Uh, and then got 530. Um, hang him a tree. Remember, that's an Old Testament reference, and that's a reference to the cross. So he was crucified, Leo, on the cross, on a cross. But you remember when he carried his cross? Um, he carried the cross beam. We see it portrayed in movies. He's carrying this big old cross. He carried the cross beam. And that beam was then nailed to that tree. And it wasn't a tree. It's a piece of wood. But the idea is it's fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. It curses every man who hangs on a tree. That's repeated in New Testament by the Apostle Paul uh, in Galatians. So um, the, the, the Bibles haven't been altered at all. I want to say that again. They're simply translating different manuscripts and uh, there's no discrepancy at all regarding being crucified on a cross or crucified on a tree it is exactly the same thing and every Jew who who understood crucifixion and understood those passages understood first they were messianic and secondly would have understood that that was uh, the idea one thing to remember is that when those Old Testament prophecies were written um, and and that's what Galatians three thirteen is quoting. Uh, also Acts chapter ten verse thirty nine. Um, those are Jewish audiences that Paul is addressing primarily, uh, and and Peter of course in Acts chapter ten. Um, um, remember the the form of the punishment of crucifixion had never even been invented, had never been thought of. It was so cruel and barbaric. It was never used until Rome introduced it um, prior to the, the, the arrival of Jesus Christ. So um, the idea is crucifying a tree. They would, uh, the, the, the prophet would describe this crucifixion. In a sense, Psalm 22 is another good example. Um, he's hung on a piece of wood, and that metaphorically would be he was hung on a tree. So there's no alteration. There's no um, attempt whatsoever uh, to change anything or hide anything. That was just the very Jewish understanding, Leo, of the, those prophetic 
and messianic passages. I think I got time for one more question um, from Smith. Why did Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans? They were all Jews, weren't they? Um, Smith, there's a couple of things here. One, uh, Jews uh, hated Samaritans. Uh, They considered Samaritans half-breeds. The Samaritan people... Uh, were the result of after the Assyrian uh, invasion and captivity of the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, um, the the way that the Assyrians uh, dealt with their enemies was to um, uh, assimilate with them. And so they would take their women and and uh, have, make families and have babies. And basically they're trying to breed the Jewishness out of them. And and Jews considered them half-breeds, and they wanted nothing to do with them. And Samaritans, of course, hated Jews because the Jews hated them. So they they were, were half-breed Jews, according to Jewish thought, and that's why they had nothing at all to do with Samaritans. The lesson for us on this myth is prejudice. There's no room for prejudice in the heart of a born-again Christian toward any group of people toward any group of people. And if we hold on to prejudice, we're just like the Jews who hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans who hated the Jews. Thank you for the question, Smith. And thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're grateful that you tuned in. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630, The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.